The Long Box Crusade presents monthly Monday movie muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and you know this, I love movies. I've got this giant collection of movies, and I loved it so much that I broke into Longbox Crusade headquarters into their attic so I could take all their movies and watch them all too. It's great. It's fun. But sometimes I just have to go out and find somebody who knows a lot more about movies than me. There's a lot of people out there like that. Tons of people. But some of them are experts. And I consider my current guest to be one of those experts. Angela Yeager. She hosts her own show here in Oregon, actually out of Salem, Oregon, called The Real Film Snobs. It's been on public access for about 20 years, and it's also on YouTube and radio and a whole lot of other places. She's got a master in film studies. She's also one of my coworkers. So this is kind of cool and kind of neat because we haven't had a chance to talk that much. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you came on my show. How are you doing, Angela? I am great, Rick. Thank you for having me. What a great introduction. <laughs> I try my best. <laughs> As I said, you have been doing your show for about 20 years. And yes. unlike this, which is all just talking in the airways, you actually get in front of the camera. So bravo for you. How did you get into this? Why did you get into this? So yes, in 2002, which uh, there's a few of your listeners are probably like, wow, I was barely born yet. But um <laughs> One of my best friends, Brian Michael, and I are huge film buffs, passionate about film. And actually, it started in 2001. We were at a party and we were arguing about the movie Moulin Rouge. And someone casually said, hey, you two have this great dynamic and you're always fighting about movies. You guys should have a show. And then another friend of ours, Melissa, who was our original producer of the show, said, you know, uh, CCTV in Salem, which is now CC Media, it's our public television station here in Salem, they, you know, they just have classes, you can sign up and then do your own TV show, and we should do that. And you and Brian should host Real Film Stops. And that's really how it kind of started. And you know, those first few years were awkward. And we had our deer in the headlight face in front of the cameras, but we got very comfortable with it and kind of loved the camaraderie of having a crew in the studio and getting to dish about movies. And both of us really looked up to Siskel and Ebert in the day. Brian mm -hmm. in particular actually flew out to Ebert Fest every single year for many years before Roger Ebert died. So met him many times and uh, was a regular at his film festival. So we were both really, really passionate about films, but had different perspectives. You know, Brian liked Westerns and comic book mo movies more than I did. I tend to go for a little bit more esoteric and foreign films. And but you know, it just worked out really well. So we did that for many years just on CC Media. And uh, over the years, Years, it's expanded. And then in the last few years, right before, right about during COVID, Brian had to step out of the show. And so I started bringing on guest hosts because we were taping via Zoom anyway. So it seemed like a good opportunity to just bring on different friends I have who are also you know, film connoisseurs, they're not all, uh, you know, maybe always at the same level as Brian, but some of them are quite knowledgeable. And it actually has been really fun because we've I've been able to have people on like a film programmer who's a professional film programmer, my friend Ernie in Phoenix, who actually makes a living programming films for films like South by Southwest. So that's been a great experience. Wow. And during that whole period, I also while I was working at OSU went back to school to get my master's in film studies and studied under my men now mentor, Professor John Lewis, who is considered one of the premier American film historians. And so I just continue to dig even deeper into movies and cinema and discover my love for it. 
that's fascinating. I love that. I love that you grabbed your passion that early on. I mean, back in 2002, my friends and I were still just diving into the MST3K bad movies of all the movies <laughs> that we liked. We we knew what good movies were. They were over there. We just wanted to dive into those bad, bad movies and have fun with them. And then every now and again, throw in a good movie just to shock our system back into relief. But going out to movies, seeing them in the theaters talking about them endlessly as you're walking through the parking lot, comparing them to various other movies that you've seen. I understand that feeling very, very well. Yeah, there's almost nothing like it. And there's the the excitement and the joy of a new movie that you haven't seen before that I mean, ends up being a masterpiece. And there's always, even when I think, gosh, I've seen so many movies, how could I see any more? There's always new undiscovered movies. And so that's, you know, mm-hmm. one of the really exciting parts. And without even having to dip into a lot of really bad ones, even though there are quite a few of those out there as well. <laughs> Yes, there are. Yes, there are. But we aren't here to talk about bad movies. We are here to talk about good movies. And talking about films that you haven't seen, even though you mentioned to me as we're talking back and forth that you burn through about five plus each week, which, man, I wish I could get back to doing that. But even with all of that, you still have a pretty good list of movies that you haven't seen. And you shared that with me. And I was able to find one that I have seen. And in this case, I actually went ahead and picked up another copy of it because I wanted to have it in my collection. I hadn't gotten it yet. But I would like you to go all the way back to 1931 to see Public Enemy, which is a pre-code gangster movie that was directed by William Wellman. And of course, this is with James Cagney, Gene Harlow, Ed Woods, and a whole bunch of other actors. And it is considered a classic. Mm-hmm. Why haven't you seen this, you know, pre-code, but this seminal gangster film? You know, it's interesting because I have seen a lot of period uh, movies from that period, and I've seen a lot of Cagney films. And for some reason, that particular film, I never, I may never made it around to. In fact, it's, I, for a few years ago, I started trying to get through some of the early gangster movies. So I watched like the original Scarface, because of course, I'd already seen the Pacino mm-hmm. Scarface, but I watched the original Scarface. Yep. And I was watching all of those. And again, somehow Public Enemy, it just didn't end up making it through. And there was no particular reason I'm not avoiding it. James Cagney, I will say, is not one of my favorite, favorite actors from those periods. I always, I found him less convincing as a heavy, just in general, because he's such a tiny little guy. But <laughs> but that's not really even the reason I avoided it. It's just, I, and it's also not always the easiest movie to find, although I think it is now that there's, especially pre-streaming services, it was not always easy to find, but I think now it is much more available. And of course, it's been remade and spoofed and I don't know how many times. So Yeah, there's a lot of this film that you're going to watch and you probably already know this too. You're going to see it and like, well, I've seen that in this film or I've seen it in this film or that's why this film has mentioned it before. What do you know about this film? Well, the main thing, I know that one of the things about it is, of course, that it was it was pre-code. So that means for the people who don't know about the, the Hollywood code, the code came into effect in 1934 and put a lot of censorship on Hollywood movies, including things like bad people had to be pum- punished. And if women were promiscuous, they had to be punished in films. And basically, if anyone did anything bad in movies, they had to be punished after 1934. <laughs> and so pre-code movies are a particularly interesting 
to me. And it, so it's actually even more embarrassing that I haven't seen this one because it's actually one of the more famous pre-code movies. I also know it was a big movie for Gene Harlow, who was just like a huge bombshell at the time, just like one of the biggest actresses of her time. And so I know that about it. And I don't think though it's been remade as, there was one thing I was confused about. You know, the film I've never seen is Public Enemies starring Johnny Depp. I've never <laughs> seen that movie either, by the way, which I don't think is supposed to be as good. But I don't think that movie is a remake. Do you know? No, I don't believe so. I don't think this has ever been specifically remade, but just because of the, the type of movie it mm -hmm. is and the gangster themes that are in it and Cagney as Cagney, we've seen it just shadowed and referenced in everything from The Godfather to Goodfellas to the right. 1980s Scarface, too. So doesn't have to be remade because we see it all the time. Yeah, exactly. It was copied a lot. And then the other thing I know about the film is that it was actually a really big hit, but it was also one of the films that when the Hayes Code went into effect, the other name for the Hollywood pro production code, it's one of the movies they cited as showing like just despicable morals, the, the characters that, that were being put out. Warner Brothers did a lot of these types of gangster movies uh, in this period. They often had a message incorporated in them, some sort of social, social issue message embedded within them. And so that was what Warner was known for at that time was kind of these cheap gangster movies that had some underlying social issues. Humphrey Bogart got his start with that studio, always playing heavies mm -hmm. in film. People often think of him as being a leading man in films like Casablanca, but he actually started as a heavy, just playing the side gangster guy holding a gun in a Warner Brothers film. So <laughs> so that's what I know about the movie, which I think is a good amount. And But there were a lot of actors during that period doing these kind of gangster movies, Edward G. Robinson, of course, and like I said, Humphrey yep. Bogart. And so, and a lot of them I felt, more, I felt always found more convincing than James Cagney. So, but I'm actually it's really excited to pick this because it's just the excuse I've needed to actually finally watch it. Yeah, I understand that. And I'm looking forward to rewatching it myself. Like I said, this is one of the ones that you sent me that I didn't own. And even though I was still even prior to you coming on the phone here with me today, I was still trying to decide between a couple movies. I still bought this because I said, I don't own this in my collection. I need it in my mm -hmm. collection. And I'd like to watch it again myself and come back over. I... I am a big fan of James Cagney. Of course, as I think about it, I'm a fan of the later James Cagney, not the gangster area James Cagney. Uh, uh, one, two, three, Mr. Roberts. I mean, I, I that's the one in my head whenever I think of Jim. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Oh, God, Yankee Doodle Dandy, yes. Well, that's the thing that's so funny. He started to, like playing a tough guy in a lot of the Warner movies. He played street hoodlums in many movies, sometimes a good guy. Sometimes he would be like the street hoodlum turned good. And this one, obviously not the case. But then then later on, he became like, you know, post-production code. He had to clean up his image. And then he became like Mr. Yankee Doodle Dandy, right? So Mr. All-American. But I think even that, and I, we're already talking about James Cagney, but we'll get more into this later on. But I even think going from the tough guy in the past, that still helped him sell a lot of the things he did in the future. Like I said, Mr. Roberts, or even one, two, three, they did a lot of thinking back mm -hmm. to what he used to be. So he could still do the comedy roles with just that little bit of menace. And it can still work because of well, that. Well, the so. actors of yesterday, not to get into like film snob boredom with your listeners, but one thing that <laughs> I just love about the actors of the classic Hollywood period, which is often considered 30s, 40s, classic Hollywood, is that 
because some of the so many of them came out of vaudeville and theater as they were multi-talented mm-hmm. so they could be you know james cagney was a dancer so he could hoof it yep. he could could sing and dance he could play bad guys he could do comedy he could do romance drama that was not unusual in those days now it would be like oh wow they can do all that you know because we think we put character we put actors into sort of slots now that they do these types of movies but that was much less common back then we are going to get more into this with James Cagney after we see this film. Yes, exactly. We say we're already starting now and I haven't even seen it yet. So I'm excited. <laughs> I am too. I am very. Let's go ahead and take a break, though. Give our listeners a chance to listen to the trailer from 1931's The Public Enemy. And we will be back after you've seen this movie. are back. Now, for those of you that have not had a chance to sit down and watch this classic movie from 1931, let me give you a very brief description and tell you a little bit about the film. This is a story of Tom Powers and Matt Doyle, best lifelong friends and fellow troublemakers. Tom lives with his mother and brother, both moral and upstanding, but the boys are part of a social club that specializes in pulling in young boys into a life of crime. From their teenage years into young adulthood, Tom and Matt have delved deeper into the underworld, resulting in an involvement with bootlegging during the Prohibition era. Tom becomes more enamored and comfortable in this violence and easy living associated with this lifestyle and is easy to anger and start fights. Soon a war starts with rival bootlegging factions and Tom, after losing his best friend, decides to take matters into his own hands with catastrophic results. So, Angela, tell me what you thought. What was your first impressions of The Public Enemy? My first impression as I was watching it was that it was refreshing to see James Cagney, of course, who this film made him a star, kind of back in these tough guy roles because so much of his later career, or really the mid-period of his career too, he was doing musicals and family-friendly Americana films. And so it had been a while since I had seen Cagney play a tough guy. He did do that in other films besides Public Enemy, but I was really excited to see him in this again. And also just mostly embarrassed as I was watching it that I hadn't seen this before because actually there were so many scenes as I was watching it, I thought, well, I've seen this scene, uh, specifically the famous grapefruit scene Mm -hmm. where he smashes the grapefruit into his girlfriend's face over breakfast, which was at the time just really shockingly violent and very visceral reaction from audiences, I can imagine, in 1931. And I'd seen that scene before. But then, so I felt like I'd seen parts of the movie, but I never had actually just sat and really taken in the, the full scope of it. So, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was really expecting to. Either something doesn't become a classic at this level without for no reason but you know sometimes pre-code movies in particular can be a bit clunky and even seem a little dated and while i think there's aspects of that to this one uh, to me it still seems pretty modern and particularly in its exploration i think of toxic masculinity which is on display here in full force and for 1931 is even more sort of revolutionary i would agree with that i 
was amazed in rewatching it myself this time. Kind of like you said, how modern some of the things are. I think the the pieces that didn't feel modern to me were some of the fight scenes, which we're expecting definitely much more of a real pullback, real punch. We've really done an acceptance into martial arts that everybody knows. If you if you're in crime or something like that, you have some experience with martial arts or boxing, or you're more of a tough guy. You don't see any of those kind of shorthanded street brawling. But besides that, there was a lot of the film that did feel kind of that new age grittiness that you see in 90s and 2000 cinemas that really came out. Yeah, definitely. And also, I just have to mention on the fighting thing, well, the fighting seems maybe, it seems, it's it was shockingly violent at the time mm-hmm. in 1931. People are like, wow, this is so violent. Now, of course, by our standards today, if you watch any gangster movies, if you've watched even one episode of The Sopranos, <laughs> does not compare to the gangster violence in this movie, obviously. But I think for the time, it was... It was pretty shockingly violent. Yeah. Thinking of some of the violent scenes that are in there, just the end scene, and also the scenes that you've seen replayed a lot of times, the scene with Cagney falling into the gutter in the rain and the blood coming down his face. Once again, 1931, you did not see that that often. In fact, that was the only scene that, well, that in the final scene, that was the only scene that you actually saw the blood. And that was pretty shocking in and of itself for that time period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was pretty surprised at how, while well, the plot itself is very kind of basic, you know, it's like you mentioned, it's the, these two guys, they start off in the hood, Irish American guys, they're just kind of scraping by and then they get involved with this gang and they're trying to, you know, rise up. The interesting thing about it, unlike some other gangster movies that you could think of, particularly one of some of the ones about, for instance, like Al Capone or something, where they're very much focused on this idea of like wealth and riches and power. The character that Cagney plays of Tom, he doesn't really seem to have the usual motivations at heart. I don't know if that makes sense. But I mean, he is interested in money, but he's also just kind of I don't know. He's kind of a layabout, you know, he's just, it's almost sort of like, yeah, I might as well do this. You're right. It's more of, I think I mentioned a little bit in my recap, it's the lifestyle that he likes. He likes to, he likes the fact that the way he grew up, the way he lives his life, his own violent tendencies, he's in a society and he's with a group of people that it is expected, it is encouraged. And so he's enjoying living that life where he's not having the constant moral walls or the moral code being pushed upon him like he got from his mom and his brother, especially his brother. Mm -hmm. So it's you're right. It's the lifestyle. The fact that he's got money and he's got clothes and he's got girls, it matters less to him than I like living like this. This is what I like. I like being my own person. Right. He likes the image and the lifestyle, and he's really kind of likes the violent. He gets pretty violent. He gets excited mm-hmm. when he get, hits people. <laughs> I mean, you can see the visceral. He almost looks anxious, too. You know, there's the one scene where he has to go behind the bar to threaten this bartender who's not buying the beer that his mob boss wants them to be buying. And, and he just seems to enjoy just kind of making the guy uncomfortable and threatening him, which is why I get back to that, you know, the toxic masculinity thing, which you can find in the best gangster movies and TV. TV shows, you know, weaving from this one to The Sopranos, which is really this exploration more of those ideas of masculinity and the immigrant experience in America and all these types of situations. And Cagney's 
character in this movie has really problematic relationships with women. There's his mother, so Mm -hmm. we haven't mentioned yet that he's a mama's boy. Yeah. His mother thinks, dear Tom, can do no wrong. Meanwhile, he's out there, you know, punching people and killing people and doing all this stuff. But, you know, her little Tommy, he can do no wrong. And so he's a mama's boy on one hand. And then on the other hand, with his relationships with women, he has these really, there's the grapefruit scene, of course, with his one girlfriend. Then he has Jean Harlow. Then there's a really interesting scene towards the end when he's holed up in the place they're hiding where a woman comes on to him and essentially gets him drunk to assault him and take advantage of him. And he, and his violent outburst when he realizes when he wakes up what happened is, is pretty, is pretty telling on what's going on in his head a little bit. So I found it really fascinating. This is the life that he wants. This is the image that he wants. And he wants to do things his own way. I think he makes the one point to Gene Harlow. He's like, well, I'm bored here now. I could stay and romance you, but that's not what I want to do. I want to go out here. He's a little boy that's never really grown up. He's got that mindset of this is what I want to do. This is how. I am. I want things this way. This woman's boring me. I'm going to go find another woman. Marriage is not for me. I'm not going to settle down. He embodies that persona. But once again, we've got the introduction and we got the ending of this film that kind of say, did you like that lifestyle? Did you like being like that person? Well, you're going to end up dead in the gutter or you're going to end up dead on your mom's front porch. You were mentioning Ma Powers' Burl Mercer. What did you think of her role? You you brought her up, and I, I'm very curious to see what you thought of her entire persona and her entire performance in this. The interesting contrast with Ma Powers is that she has two sons. We haven't talked about his brother yet too much. The good brother, of course, who went off to war and did what he was supposed to do and has been helping the family out. And then Tommy, her baby. And both of the boys idolize their mother, you know, and think that she's, but she has this huge blind spot when it comes to Tommy in particular. And it creates this huge tension between the boys because it both seems like they're kind of basically competing for their mother's attention and love. Do you remember, and again, I've only watched it the one time, I probably should have watched this multiple times, but do you remember, did they talk about his father at all or what happened to him? No, they kind of gloss over it. And I was a little confused on my rewatch of this as well, because we had the one guy who was living there. And it wasn't sure if that he was a tenant at that house or if he lived there, if he was a relation, but he was the officer. I think it was Officer Pat Burke. But he's the one that at the very beginning, he punishes, does a, uh, uh, grabs the leather strap and, and slaps him on the butt. Tommy just takes it because he did wrong. And then later on, he's kind of involved in the family life, but he's just off to the side. I don't think that's his father. I think that's a family friend or maybe his uncle. They treat him just as this person. But we never find out what happened right. to the father. No. The reason I asked is I missed this. And this is why I want to, I need to go back and rewatch it again, which is easy to do because it's a short film. It mentioned in one uh, some article I was reading about the film to prep for this that they, you know, there's the scene where they get cornered by a, a policeman and they mm-hmm. kill the policeman, yeah. which also would have been very controversial at the time. And they mentioned at some point that Tommy's father was also a cop. So that's another interesting twist in all of this is that he's turned to crime, of course. Mm-hmm compared to his brother and it's almost like this rebellion against his father his brother that's all kind of tied up in in his actions yeah he's he's very much anti the rest of the family the interesting thing that i always notice with his mother though is they want her affection but it seems like she's very willing to give her affection to either son she doesn't want them to fight she wants them to be happy she's drinking beer at the table even though she knows her she can see that mikey is not 
liking it that much. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, you see her just trying to calm the faction. She wants them to get along. She wants everybody to be happy, and she can't understand why they can't be. And it's not like she's pulling Tommy aside and saying, you know, I don't want you doing evil. She's just proud of him no matter what. Exactly. And then there's the situation of his brother, who's back from World War One, his service, which that brings in because it's in 1931. Mm. So you did have a lot of veterans, you know, and they didn't use the words PTSD, but it's kind of obvious that he had issues in the war and that he's got some issues based on his time during the war and that he's really he you know that he has this confrontation with Tommy where he accuses him of being involved in this violence and enjoying hurting people and how that's everything he's against and he's breaking his mother's heart so again setting up that contrast between the brothers and Tommy's response back is well you killed people how is it okay for you right. to kill people? Right. You enjoyed, you killed people in the war, I, right? And I bet so, you enjoyed yeah. it too, which you can see that kind of cuts him really deeply as well. And there's probably a few different themes in the film. The, the story, like you said, is it's kind of thin, but there's a lot of different themes that are in this film. And I think brothers is a big theme. What did you kind of see with that? Or what did you take away from that? Well, he's got essentially two brothers in Mm -hmm. the film. I mean, he has his actual brother, who he's really the opposite of. And then Matt, his bestie, his best friend, who is always around him. But then he really almost... And I think this could be maybe interpreted different ways, but I almost felt like he sacrificed man, Matt, for his own... Because of his own just inner tor- turmoil when he's just like we got to get out of this house after the the issue happens with that woman in their hideout spot and so and matt is the opposite of his brother matt is a, a, a another criminal who came also from the streets like tommy and is just also into doing as much crime as possible so and he's much closer in some ways with matt I don't know. Did you find his reaction to what happens to Matt at the end interesting? I just, I thought it was surprisingly glib, I guess. It, it goes by fast, but you do, it's really fast, you, you yeah. do see some terror, horror, and resolve going through Tommy's face as he's look because he's there with him and he knows he's got to get out of there because people are coming, cops are coming, and you see him around the corner and I think it's probably some of the best performance that he's got in this film. It just goes very fast. James Cagney does react, and you can see him make a resolve that he is going to avenge this death. He doesn't care about his own life anymore. And I think you see what he does at the end there. He goes in there by himself to destroy this rival gang. He doesn't right. care what happens to his own Which body. Which he had, like, no chance of at all. Because right. they just walk out on the street. And and that's one of the really cool things about this movie, I just have to say, yeah. that, I, that I loved, is that you never see... Who really did it, right? You really don't know. I mean, we see someone shooting at them, but who is it? You mean uh, Matt, when, when Matt gets killed? It's tied to the, oh, I'm going to mess, mess up the name. No, I think it's the Ember Burns gang. It's the gang that's going up against Patty Ryan's gang. And they they have a little bit at the beginning where you see somebody watch Patty Ryan leave the safe house. And he makes the phone call to the Ember Burns gang. And the next thing you see is the Ember Burns gang. They're setting up the machine guns across the street. You don't see their faces, but you, you imply that it's the gang that's doing it. Right, that it's the gang, yeah. And then we assume it's the same for Tommy at the end yeah. then? Yeah, Tommy goes after that gang. And then that gang then retaliates when they kidnap Tommy from the hospital and kill him. And at the end, they all just kill each other. So at the end, it's Hamlet. <laughs> Everybody dies. Right. One more thing on Matt, though. I well, Matt is a criminal. Matt definitely is 
the softer of the two. He is the one that actually seems to have remorse over their killing of Putty Nose. Their old boss, or their, the leader of the social club that they had, he kind of turned their back on them during this one botched robbery. And so they hold a grudge for many, many years, and they have a chance to uh-huh. take him out. And when they do, you see Matt just disgusted and scared when Tommy kills him in cold blood and then walks out and makes some offhand remark about calling up this new girl he met, not even recognizing what he just did. But Matt's still there. Matt's also the one that gets married. And Tommy says, no, I'm not going to get married. But Matt wants to settle down with one girl. (laughs) Whether or not he's going to be faithful, I mean, you know, but he's making an effort. So you see that Matt's the one that's probably closer to his real brother, Mike. But Matt can actually get along with and and he's willing to be a criminal like Tommy is. Did you think that the casting, though, of Matt the actor who plays him is decidedly more feminine and polished looking than Cagney, who's much more of has that stocky build and a little bit more of like a street thug, even the way he carries himself. And Matt is a little bit more elegant, even the way he wears his hat. And I thought that was a really interesting contrast that also kind of plays into, again, some of my theories here about these, these ex- explorations of different types of masculinity because you all you have three different men here that are all broken fundamentally i mean because even mike the brother the war veteran he is struggling because of what he's gone through at the war and he's broken in a different way than these other two men i just found that really interesting it's kind of funny you mentioned that because one of the things i found out about this film is originally James Cagney and Edward Woods, who plays Matt Doyle, his best friend, mm-hmm. they were supposed to be switching roles. It was supposed to be Edward Woods playing the Tom Powers role and James Cagney playing the Matt Doyle role, mm-hmm. which if you think back to the beginning of the film where they had the kids, the two boys that are playing the younger versions of them, the Tom Powers kid is taller than the Matt yeah. Doyle, which if you go forward, it's like, oh, that would make a lot more sense between the James yeah. Cagney and <laughs> He lost his growth spurt at some point. Exactly. And and so and they did a real they were trying to, you know, set up these ways that they kind of the mannerisms that they both had. But at some point in time early on they realized that you know James Cagney wanted that Tom Powers role or there was some reason why they switched. And it's it would be fascinating to try to see this film with Edward Woods in that Tom Powers role. I I don't know if he could pull it off. I don't know if the film would be as successful with him I don't in know role. if he would. He doesn't have the star power. He's the side. I mean, that actor, I've seen him in other films, but he's definitely a side character yeah. type actor, whereas Cagney is just a superstar and you can tell it. I do think that that would have been a little bit more typical in a way because you see some of the other gangster films from this period and even maybe later on, but like Little Caesar, where often the person who rose to height in the in the gangster arena is the one who's a little bit more slick and more of a stylish dresser with the ladies and and actually in this case it's matt that's that character not tommy he's the kind of rough hoodlum still which often in gangster movies that's the side character right the main guy is the slicker one who's like telling the other guy hey go out and do this but he's not getting his hands dirty as much so i found that really an interesting switch in this case and also that women are still into the cagney character is still into tommy because he's so raw like the one woman just says well you you'd only take you don't you don't give ever and that's what I like about you. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, well, you're also messed up. So there's like everyone in this film is messed up. But. 
Yeah, I found that that really interesting. And I also, the prohibition stuff is also, very, of course, very timely for this period. The violence and, and the, the sexual innuendos for a pre-code movie is, is sort of on point. I don't find it, you know, I've seen pre-code movies actually that are a lot racier than this one. So I could see why this one became so popular. What were some of your favorite scenes? This is a fun movie because there's a lot of quick scenes. They do a lot of setup. There's a lot of real good cinematography in here. But was there any favorite scenes that stood out for you in this film? Well, of course, there's the grapefruit scene, which we've already discussed. One of my other favorite scenes is in the bar when he, Cagney, goes up to the beer. He takes the the bar owner we were talking about earlier that's not serving the brand of beer that they want him to serve, not serving their boss's beer, right, that they've, that they've arranged with for the bootlegging. He takes a sip of the beer and then he, and then he spits it out. And this, it's the way he shoots it out of his mouth into the face of the bar owner is just, or the bartender is just a classic scene visually and great timing. Yeah. Yeah, they do that. Then he comes around the corner and he starts pulling down the kegs and starts just the beer sporting out and does the slap slap on his face. Right, right. Which, you know, like, as you mentioned, that's maybe not as intimidating as you might think because of slapping rather than punching. But if you've seen enough French movies, you can know that's how they used to like do fight scenes back in the day guys would just slap each other around but anyway <laughs> actually it's interesting because you have movies like that that almost have like a comedic aspect to them and the way they're done kind of like wise guys mm-hmm. like just and then towards the end it almost turns into film noir yeah of course way before film noir was really a thing or had a late nab- label but it get the film is very dark in terms of the photography at the end the scene where he comes out it's almost like in total blackness mm-hmm. when they come out on the street towards the end for the big the big gun fight out the way they're using the shadows and the darkness i just thought was just beautiful in terms of the whole staging of that part of the the movie is just gorgeous that in the final scene too when they his brother opens up the door and his body is is balanced there and it goes back, goes forward, and then just collapses forward. It, mm-hmm. It's a solid scene. They've got the camera just bolted down on the floor, and you see that. Oh, and the way it's wrapped up, so it just looks like a mummified, the way it just, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's very, very effective yeah. filmmaking. <laughs> of course, William Wellman, the director, went on to do a lot of other films and became a very, very famous Hollywood a Hollywood filmmaker. So I think, and you can see this even early on, that he's got these instincts for framing the shots in the most effective way for i'm sure the audiences at the time gasping when they were seeing i love early films like this and i especially saw it when i rewatched wings a long time ago and you're just watching them create cinematography on the screen but there's little things in this film that you're like wow i can see that they just came up with that they they had a thought they wanted to do it there's a scene where I mentioned it already. Patty Ryan is is leaving the safe house and he drives his vehicle out and they dug a hole in the ground and put the camera in the hole so that they, the car drove over it. And you can see that the, oh, wow. the director's like, I've got an idea. You know, now we would take a shot like that. Like, oh, it's nothing. But back then you're like, that's new. And that would have just shocked the audience right there of like, ooh, this is a, a downward shot so you know there's that little evil bit and the car's going right over you know what's going to happen it's it's a weird perspective and it's i like seeing things like that where they come up with ideas in the in the film and 
Yeah, they're literally inventing cinema as they're going along here, and that's very exciting for film lovers. And it always disappoints me when people say they love movies but they don't watch older films because you're really <laughs> it, it's it's not old fashioned or boring or this is really cinema being invented and all the things you take for granted now. There were artists creating these ideas on the spot, and a lot of it still is very effective today. And not to mention, you had real stars back then. I mean, Jean Harlow became a star after you know she she just pops off the screen she became this huge sex icon james cagney this film made a star of him Mm -hmm. he wasn't a star before this movie it actually kind of almost ruined him because he got pigeonholed for a while as tough guys and that's he was a song and dance man he had done vaudeville he wanted to do musicals and be uh do song and dance stuff and then everyone was like well you're the tough guy and he's like no 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 that's not what i wanted to do but he so he had to to eventually try to get away from that but he was so effective in this role that people wanted to just cast him like that so and i've never been a huge james cagney fan which is one of the reasons why i think i maybe avoided this but you can definitely see his star power at work here oh yeah i especially liked a couple of scenes where you see that song and dance persona come in he just got finished hitting on gene harlow's character and she walks away and he does that little dance and skip and turn and like a a (laughs) twirl around and gets back in the car and he's just happy and it's like we haven't seen his character do that but it feels natural because it's james cagney and he's able to pull it off he has a physicality even like the scene i mentioned where he spits the bar the beer in the bartender's face is very it's like perfect comedic timing in a way and so there's an element of that that comes from being in musicals and singing and dancing and vaudeville where you have that sort of timing down and it almost feels like i don't know whether that was improvised or not but I heard that the grapefruit scene was, yeah. it wasn't even supposed to be shot. It wasn't supposed to be filmed. He just did it as a gag on set. And then the director was like, oh, we're keeping this. <laughs> so and people were already shocked when they saw it. So and talk about the worst fruit to get in your eye, by the way, grapefruit. I mean, that would have really stung your eyes. Realistically, she should have just been like wincing afterwards <laughs> rather than looking at him with disgust. But anyway. Let me ask you this. Is there anything in this film that you really didn't like? Or is there anything that really stuck with you as didn't work or maybe even the the dating of it really is felt? You know, not really. I mean, I've seen enough films from this era that things that are super dated don't always bother me. And unlike some movies from like the 30s, for instance, it doesn't have anything like horribly racist in it because it's mostly dealing with Irish Americans. You could say, I'm sure there's people that could say it has, I think they even did at the time, negative stereotypes of Irish Americans yeah. and immigrants. But we've seen that in lots of gangster movies up till today. And, and I think there was even comments at the time, the Italians were saying, well, thank God it's not us for a change. Like they're sort of focusing on another group. <laughs> because you had so many other gangster movies that focused on Italian Americans. So I, I don't really see anything that's super dated. I think that, you know, I, you could argue that the female characters, the women are all a little bit typecast, but so are the men in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you only have three sort of male archetypes in the film. And so the women, you have the the Jean Harlow, who's essentially like the sex pot, Floozy, the girlfriend at the beginning, and then the woman at Patty's house, and then the mother, who's just the tip. I mean, they're not really deeply drawn characters but i wasn't expecting that going in so i wasn't disappointed if anything else we can say hey they had actual african-americans yes they were the waiters at the restaurant and the, you know the people who drove the cars they weren't in blackface they were though, they were not in, in blackface yeah I mean, which was pretty common they, they had so. actual african-american actors in those roles and they were yeah, treated people. and they were treated with respect i mean 
die. Yeah, they weren't on screen for very long. But I mean, you have to remember 1931. Yeah. I mean, people will watch movies from this period and be offended by right. the racial depictions often. And you have to remember the time period you were looking at. And actually, in a way, it's really progressive in that yeah. way. Um, but but um, one thing I should mention for, for your listeners that may not know, you know, Warner Brothers, of course, became the studio that was really famous for putting out these kind of what, what they call socially conscious movies. And unlike of the Warner Brothers we think of today, they were actually more of a low budget studio. So Gene Harlow became one of their stars, Cagney, and back then stars kind of stayed with the studio that made them famous. So they, you know, they did a lot of the gangster movies at the period, but it was only over a couple year period that gangster movies really reigned supreme. Warner Brothers was considered the, some of the best of them. And of course, the you know, one of the greatest actors of all time, Humphrey Bogart, became known for his work with Warner Brothers, also often playing hoods mm-hmm. or toughies, as they used to call them back in those days, bad guys, inside roles until he broke out with his big break. So I think it, it's interesting back then, studios were known for certain things. And there is to a certain degree, too. People can't see you right now, but I can see your Marvel poster <laughs> behind you. And of course, some studios are known for certain things, you know, like Marvel, Disney for instance but back then it was the same thing but you had MGM was known for these grand just huge musical productions big budget movies Warner Brothers was where the low budget that's where the interesting directors went that wanted to get away with stuff they went to Warner Brothers and um, because Jack Warner and his brothers were like okay whatever we, you can do it cheap and it will get butts in the seats we don't care what you do <laughs> and so they were really one of the best studios for these pre-code movies because they were willing to push the edge and they and they really had a, a thing to do socially conscious movies so about things that were going on at the time, whether it was poverty or gangs or crime, any sort of social issue. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, Is there any other scenes or any other characters that you want to talk about? I think we've hit most of them. We've hit a lot of it. I mean, we've talked a lot for a movie that's, you know, probably, what, 87 minutes or something, so uh, we don't want the discussion to be longer than the movie. I would just recommend people check out this movie, of course, but also be open to watching older films, classic films, silent films, even. Mm -hmm. So even pre-1931, this is a sound film, but it's it's actually pretty early for sound in 1931, but, you know, be open to those experiences and seeing how cinema developed over the years and not using your your 2022 lens through it but really looking at it through the framework of what it would have been like to experience this film you know at the time i really agree with that like i said i i've watched wings i one point in time i challenged myself to watch all the academy award winning best films and i went through that entire list and watched them all and i really enjoyed watching some of those early early films like we talked about we watched cinema being developed Sometimes it's like, oh, this is a little hard because, you know, I'm not used to this. But you see the beginning of cinema. You see the beginning of filmography. You see them making the change to go off of what was traditionally vaudeville or stage and how they needed to modify that with the freedom that film gave them. You know, moving from one camera, the, the audience view, to using that camera to go around. And all of a sudden, you've got the entire space that you can now exist in. And you're not hampered by what is just a one-directional viewpoint. Right. And one thing I would say about that's a really plus for the public enemy compared to a lot of films of its era to what you were saying is some of those films can be very tedious to watch mm-hmm. in part because film was a new, uh, new medium, a new art form. And there was still a lot of like uh, basic adaptations of like, Oh, this is like a play or this is like a novel. And they didn't know how to make it a cinematic language where there was 
you know, cuts in an appropriate way and where it moved at a way that kept your interest. And so you will find a lot of early films sometimes are very stilted or have they really feel pretty slow. This film is film it's mm-hmm. really a cinematic film in in the best way it doesn't feel like something that was adapted from a novel it feels like something that was meant to be shown on a screen to an audience it's action-packed it moves right along at a good doesn't waste a lot of time it just keeps going and each shot as we talked about before particularly some of those shots in the rain at the end it feels like cinema it doesn't feel like oh we just stuck people in a house and behind a sound or in front of a sound stage to read some lines because we weren't sure what else to do we just moved the camera three times because that's all we know how to do <laughs> so like I mentioned, too, at the beginning of the film, they set the stage for where you're at. It's 1909, and they do this entire montage of what do the streets look like? How do people move in that city? You get a feeling for the time period that it's in. And that's kind of advanced filmmaking is you're setting the mood, you're setting the scene. It's quick jump cuts of these little scenes, these little things that are happening that make you feel like you're in the area, you're in the town where this is taking place, which that helps set a lot of people at the time. So bravo for the film and bravo for them discovering that aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I was super excited. I got a chance to talk about it with you. And maybe you'll have me back someday. We could talk about... There's a few other films out there I haven't seen. So A couple. A couple. We, you, a couple. You gotta, There's a couple. You got to somehow get me on your show first. But before we do all that, before we do yeah, all that... we'll do that. Let okay. me ask you the really important question. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this film? One to five, no halvesies. Now's your time to tell us how much you really loved this film from 1931. I'm going to give it four. Four popcorn bags. I would agree with that. I, I think this is fantastic film, and I'll, I'll let you talk about it too, but I think this fantastic film, I think there's a couple things that just need to be tightened up to get that extra five fifth star but what do you think about that i would agree i in terms of a movie a classic movie from you know 30s or 40s a casablanca or something something you feel like you could watch over and over it doesn't quite have that magic for me maybe it is because the characters are mostly unlikable i mean let's face it there's almost no one likable in this movie yeah maybe the exception of the brother you know but i mean (sighs) there's not really a a ton of Cagney's character is likable in a very unlikable way you Mm -hmm. know he's likable in the way it's kind of fun sometimes to watch like some who's really mean if it's not directed at you but he's a bully you know he's not a nice guy and so and neither is his partner so so i think there's something to that in terms of rewatchability i don't necessarily need to like all the characters in a movie in order to love the movie but i would just say it it doesn't have that five star feeling to me that a a classic like a again i go back to like a casablanca or something like the apartment or you know some of my favorite movies of all time so i would say that it feels like a four-star movie now and i think because some of the aspects of it have dated a little bit i Totally agree. And especially anytime you mention the apartment, my heart goes a flutter. It's my number one film of all time. It's uh, on my top ten list, but it's my number one. It's it's mine too. I would say you ask me which day of the week my number one's gonna change, but that one is that's in my main selection of number one films. We talked about your show that you're gonna have me on some point in time, but can you tell the yes. folks out there what you do again? Remind them about your show and plug what you will. Yes. Uh, so you can Check me out on our TV show, uh, Real Film Snobs, and it's on realfilmsnobs.com, or even better yet, we're on YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, which is just YouTube 
uh, backslash real film snobs that's spelled r-e-e-l like a reel of film for those who are old school and yes i do have to explain that to the young ends because they don't know what reels of film are anymore and that's why we're real film snobs <laughs> we're on youtube we are have our own podcast as well we are on multiple radio stations in salem corvallis and silverton as well as cable access tv show in um, in salem cc media airs our tv show so we're we're all over the place and you can also follow us on social media of course too but yeah i appreciate people checking it out thank you very very much and you can find me on twitter at m muckabout or on my other podcast unpacking the power of power pack which i host with jeff a man that is always ready to take a grapefruit to the face if you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at jeffnorikpresent, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, a big thank you to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this wonderful attic of their headquarters to broadcast this show. And thank you to the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you would like to support it, please head on over to Patreon and search for The Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have this month. Please grab some popcorn and pull up a seat. We'll be back in a month with another episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N 99.